0: Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I will be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys, and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe, and of course, leave a review. Have you noticed that you sometimes use food the same way that you used alcohol? Like using food as a reward? Using food to numb out? Are you eating in secret? Feeling guilt and shame? If so, then you'll like this news. I am so excited to announce that I've partnered up with Coach Helen Bennett, who specializes in helping people to stop losing control with food. For the next three months, Helen is offering all of my listeners 10% off any of her courses, classes and even her private coaching programs. You can find her on Instagram at Coach Helen Bennett, or go to her website, which is helenbannett.co. I'll put the link in the show notes. To access the 10% discount, use the promo code SOBERDAVE at checkout. Or if you chat to her directly, just let her know that I sent you over. Helen is compassionate and very practical, and she's not afraid to tell it like it is. So don't forget, Go to our website or Instagram and use promo code Dave to claim your 10% discount now. Now back to the show. And on this week's episode, we have the wonderful Susan Christina. She is an absolute powerhouse in the sober community and is the founder of the brilliant online magazine, Hola Sober. She is so full of positivity and motivation and an ideal guest to start this new season of podcasts off. So, I really hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Sue. Welcome to One for the Road. How are you today?
1: Well, listen, any woman out there listening that knows that if you get up on a Saturday morning and you find yourself looking across the screen at the handsome Dave, it's a good kickoff.
0: Hang on. <laughs> <actually>. <laughs> you smooth. Wonderful talk of you. That's brightened my day up. No ends. And you're not so bad yourself, you know, Sue. You're absolutely gorgeous. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Where were you speaking from today?
1: This morning I'm joining you from my lovely home office here in Madrid. But as you will hear, I'm not native to Spain. I'm actually Irish, and um, I'm from the beautiful and the fabulous city called Limerick, uh, the birthplace of the wonderful Terry Wogan.
0: Ah, for many,
1: yeah, for many of us, it's also the rugby capital of the universe. Although some Irish people and all black people might actually dispute that fact, but that's my home city, and I. Lived in France for 10 years with my family before we moved here to Madrid. We're here nearly a decade, but my husband is from Barcelona. So in many ways for him, it was coming home. And for me on these mornings in early July with blistering heat, um, I do crave the cool, gentle rain of Limerick in Ireland. I can tell you in middle of July.
0: So you grew up then in Ireland. Do you want to wind us back to that and tell us what it was like for you as a, a wee lass?
1: As a wee lass, yeah, indeed. Um, I was really lucky and very privileged to be raised by fabulous parents. Um, My dad's name was Tom and my mother, my late mom, she died last year, was Martha and she was the queen. And um, I suppose in many ways, because of the content of what you and I are going to talk about, people wonder, was drinking and over drinking in your family, you know, and the magic was that it wasn't, Right. I didn't grow up in a home where there was excessive alcohol in any shape or form. Um, yeah, my dad went to the rugby grounds and he used to be an announcer at Thomon Park, which is a very famous Irish rugby ground. And he was the announcer there for 30 odd years and he'd have a pint. But he wasn't a drinker, you know? So I didn't grow up in a house where alcohol was celebrated or venerated, or I didn't grow up in a house where my parents didn't show up because of alcohol. I didn't grow up in a house where we went without because of alcohol. So I think sometimes when I look back on my own story, I wonder was it something within me that was wrong or flawed or different? That I wasn't able to manage my drinking because I can't tell you any horror stories. I don't have any big trauma. And so many times when people talk about their drinking story, you know, they can map you all the way back to when they were a young child or they saw something or they heard something or they were reduced into tears because of something that they saw. And I'm one of those people. I don't have that. I don't have the big trauma. I don't have the small trauma. I had what I would consider to be a very privileged um, Irish childhood. My mom and dad worked. My mom was a housekeeper, a cleaner. She worked five days a week. She was a queen. And um, I had three sisters. My brother had died um, the year before I came into the world. His name was Brian. And I think in some ways, as a small child, him being the only boy in a bevy of women to a man who adored sport, I think maybe I tried to emulate and become the boy. So I swung out of trees and fell off bicycles and climbed walls. Mm. And I think as in terms of being an Irish person, I was not in the pub or drinking at the back of the schoolyard at 15 or 16. The very first time I had a drink, I was nearly 19 years of age. And I had stag and ice in the honour of blessed, like stag and ice. Do you remember? And then I had, oh, God, when I think about it,
0: Malibu and pineapple. Oh God, I forgot about Malibu.
1: Malibu and pineapple. And like you'd go up to your local and you were like 19. You thought you were so cool, you know, I'd have a Malibu and a pineapple. And you'd want to throw up the minute you'd actually had one, let alone two. And then I went through, as many young Irish girls did, I went through the black Russian phase, which was Tia Maria, vodka, coke with a Guinness head. Like, Jesus, how were we not dead at the age of 20? Will I repeat that for you? Tia Maria, vodka, Coca-Cola with a Guinness head
0: on it. Like Who invented that?
1: Some very drunk Irishman, I Probably. would expect right yeah. because it was even now that I describe it, you know, 35 years later, I something in my stomach gives way. So I was that sort of, if you like, 19, 20 year old, you know, trying out different drinks I didn't like Guinness. There you go, broke the religious code, didn't like Guinness. Um, and my dad used to always say, um, no woman should hold a pint glass, right? So I would have a glass of something. And no woman or man should have hard spirits until they're in their 30s. Sadly, I didn't listen to my dad. And on my 21st birthday, a friend of mine bought me an Irish coffee. And I think that was my first love. There was something to me at that time, uh ultra chic and cool. Um, I was a barman's worst nightmare. My cousin used to work in a bar called Willie Saxons, and he'd see me come in and he'd go, don't you dare order an Irish coffee. There's 19,000 people at the bar. You know, so I was that woman who thought, yeah, I love an Irish coffee. <laughs> and, you know, how dumb and insecure was that? So my drinking career in the beginning was exploratory. And I think like many of us in this space, I'm 56, um, the early years of my drinking career are insignificant, nothing to tell, mm. no big traumas, no big fallout, no big conversations, no alleged damage, right, done to me. But as we all know, drinking is progressive. And I think that when 20 years ago, my youngest son, he's now 20. And when he was born, he came prematurely and he was really ill, like critically ill and spent a lot of time in intensive care when he was born. And he had multiple issues. And I had two other children. I have three boys. And at that time, the healthcare system in Ireland was rather banjaxed as it is now. And to get the care that he needed on a constant basis, I was having to bring him up to Dublin, which was a two hour car drive. So um, his dad um, was from the north of Spain and there were specialists there who were experts in the field. So we took the decision to go there temporarily to seek treatment for Sam. And when we went, it became that no brain family decision that the treatment of our son was more important than where we lived. And if this is where the treatment was accessible, Um, And would save his life, essentially. That's where we had to stay. And I think that's when drinking went from i will have an Irish coffee to I'm in a foreign land. I don't speak French. I don't speak Spanish. I had like school French. These doctors are talking at me. Uh, It's medical critical care. I don't have friends or family. I've no support. My husband's family were there. They didn't speak English. Um, I had two other children. My eldest at the time was 12. And I put him into boarding school in Ireland because he he was going through the Harry Potter phase and wanted to be in Hogwarts. So I found the school in Ireland nearest to looking to Hogwarts. And my eldest sister, Jura took care of him at weekends. So there was this ginormous family crisis that came about because of health. And it was one of those parenting decisions, Dave, that you make that you, you look back on now and you think, I did the right thing, but it was really hard. It was yeah. really, really hard, right? And it was brave, but it was also one of those decisions as parents we make when we have no choice. So I used to say to my friends, I'm a reluctant hero in this story. I had no choice. If I'd been given a choice to stay in Ireland, I would have stayed. But you're looking down at this child who needs constant intervention in medical care, Dublin two hours in a car, or relocate to another country where you get it instantly. That was the way forward. And I think I think that for me, I held it. And and the kid's dad, my ex-husband, he he found all of that really difficult to cope with. And I think the fractures in our marriage came through at that time. And I was the one that was like, no, I can handle it. No, it's fantastic. And I went through the I'm fine phase. Everything's fine. I'm doing this for the love of my child. And I think if I was to be really insightful and forensically look at when did an Irish coffee become, I'd have one on a Friday to, I really want to make a very strong Irish coffee so I can forget about the shit that I'm living in right now. And I think the map would start in some ways there. yeah. And I think that's when I look back and being those women, and I think there's a lot of us, Dave, out there, women and men, we can't come on here and say to you, well, when I was seven, I was shot. Or, you know, when I was 10, I saw my father beat my mother. You see, we saw none of that. But sometimes life de- deals as a set of cards. And the culture we've grown up in says Maybe you can't go get your hair done because you can't get a babysitter, and maybe you can't go a buy a pair of shoes because maybe you don't have the money to buy a pair of shoes, but you can have a drink and you can sit down and you can nurse it and you can switch off for an hour, and something within us needs that at that time of crisis, yeah. switch off moment, and I think that's Dave where the the trouble.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating looking at the bullet points of your life going back. And it. I agree, it's not always about childhood trauma, little T's, big T's, but it can be an event in your life when you're already overwhelmed or, you know, there's this whole cost of living thing going on at the moment. There's always something, right? We had COVID, didn't we? And then this and, you know, and then we become overwhelmed and that can go from a couple of glasses with dinner to actually I finished a bottle last night. And then that can go to, oh, I just wanted one out of the second bottle. I ended up doing half of that as well. And it it goes from like your the way you painted it as in the, you know, the posh Irish coffee to I need a large Irish coffee to manage my emotions to stop the noise.
1: absolutely. And the home pour is singularly the most dangerous thing in our lives. Yeah. As we are unaware, and certainly I was, and I know you were too, we're unaware of the toxicity of what we're actually putting into our bodies from a liquid format, but also from we're putting something toxic in our body in terms of the noise in our head. So on one hand, we think we're switching off. On the other hand, what we're actually doing is throwing fuel on the fire. And as we both know, and anyone listening out there who's questioning their own drinking, the only thing I do know about my own drinking story is, is that I didn't realize how rapidly or how progressive it would become. Mm. I didn't realize that my glass of wine was going to go from, I have one after work, after a heavy day and traffic on the M40 here in Madrid, which drives me insane to, and I've, I've said it many times, you know, but I can actually visualize it when I say it that I would come in downstairs, put down my bag and say I'm home and announce to the world I'm home and walk straight to the kitchen and go to the wine rack. As I'm taking off my jacket and I'm using the corkscrew and I'm pouring a glass and taking a sip and I'm leaving it on the counter for all to see, because lo and behold, I don't want anyone to think I'm I'm drinking in secret. I'm being open and honest about my drinking. And I go upstairs and I get out of my work clothes and I get into my leggings and I come down I finish the glass and I prepare dinner. By the time we eat together as a family, I am three and a half glasses in. Mm. And nobody knows it because we're experts at it. So I'm not sitting in front of you slurring my words. I can go to the front door and talk to a neighbor. I can answer the telephone and do FaceTime. There's a million tasks that I can do that I believe I'm not compromised because I've just had three or four glasses of wine. And many of us, who were part of the chic Irish coffee of the 90s, if you like, went on to the wine o'clock and the me time and all that bullshit. But, you know, what the insidious nature of alcohol is, is that not only do we lie to the outside world about the fourth class, the fifth class and the sixth class, but the biggest lie we tell is to ourselves. Mm. And we think that it is normal, you know, to sit down, have a glass of wine with dinner. And when I look back on that, Dave, I say to myself, Sue, in the honour of, bless it, you grew up in a household and you grew, your mother served milk or water with Sunday, Christmas Day, Easter. It like, where exactly do you think that having wine with a dinner every single day is appropriate? So then I would hold on to the fact I live in France this yeah. is me supporting the local economy. What bullshit. You know, so I think that's the frightening piece, that we go on this conveyor belt of one glass, two glass, three glass, four, and suddenly, suddenly, holy cow, we're getting stressed when we've only one bottle of wine left in the wine rack. We're actually going, how am I going to go out and get another bottle without anybody really noticing? So inventing, I go for red I go for milk, but really, we're actually filling the wine rack. And all of those things, it's like tumbleweed, right? It starts coming through your mind when you're looking back and you're thinking, how did I let it get that far? And I think that's one of the things that many women and men struggle with. I think they think, I thought I was smart. I thought I was intelligent. I thought I had my finger on the pulse. I raised a good family. My kids are all washed. You know, um, they're, they're smart, lovely boys. How the hell did I fall down into the bottom of that bottle? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the piece that many of us struggle with in the beginning.
0: I agree. And I, and I think that's what happened with lockdown because we were all forced into this huge summer holiday. You know, in the UK, it was March, I think, the 20th, and it was boiling. And there were people, there was an app called House Party. Um, and everyone were in it and they're all in their sun lounges, cheering the glass of wine, no work today. And, and it's like this huge global holiday right at the beginning. And obviously it changed quickly. But what happened then, daytime drinking become quite normal, acceptable. And, and how you described it exactly how it is, the romanticizing of the drinking, you know, and then when it all went back to normal or gradually people were like, Fancying glasses of wine in the afternoon. And I've said before, there was um, someone uh, that I know that was blowing their cup, pretending it was hot tea and it was actually a cold Sauvignon Blanc, you know? And it, it's a cumulative. So for me, I didn't go from four cans of Foster's to liters of vodka. But for me, it was like, this isn't quite getting me to the place I want to be. Which is to literally think of nothing. So you, you go for that extra glass and then that extra glass goes into the second bottle.
1: Absolutely. Because we need the noise to switch off, whatever the noise is, whether it's insecurity, whether it's perimenopause, which if you're having, you need to see a doctor, you'll be in the Lancet. You'd be the first man to be in perimenopause. But if it's perimenopause, menopause, children, and, and, and the thing about it is, is that it's this forever reaching. And that's the danger of addiction. It's forever reaching. We're reaching for the next piece, be that the next glass, the next liter, the next bottle, you know, because we need to reach that zone out place because it's self-medication. With that, you know, so back in the 60s, it was Mother's Little Helper and it was Valium. For our generation, it's been alcohol and it switches off the white noise. We allegedly are, you know, decompressing after our busy days when the truth of the matter is, you know, we are so unproductive while drunk. And I hate to say that, but, you know, there is so much, if you like, softening of the language. Mm. There's so much softening and desensitizing everybody to the fact that we don't want to face up. I certainly found it difficult to face up to the fact that I was drunk of an evening. But guess what? I was. I drank a bottle every single day. Some days it had more effect than others. One bottle and a bottle and a half and a sachet and a bottle and a half on a Sunday. That was it. I'm married to an engineer. He can tell you that if his life depended on it, it's the same answer. But the thing about it is I was not legally able to drive a car, but I was able to run a family, take work calls, run this house, talk to these children, reprimand these children. I'm allegedly capable of all that, but I can't get behind the wheel of a car. And if I do, I'll be arrested and rightly so. So therefore, there is this huge cognitive dissonance between drinking and the word drunk, mm. right? Mm. Because people think drunk is, you know, under the bridge or walking down the high street with your trousers back around and you are showing to the world. Or a girl with a tongue up and her dress stuck up her back. Okay, bless those people. That's one form of drunkenness. But there was another form of drunkenness. And that was me in, in a kitchen, well-dressed, lipstick on, Allegedly on the top of her game when the truth of the matter is after six glasses of wine, nobody's at the top of their game. Nobody. Yet, yet, rinse and repeat. Did it every single day. Rinse and repeat. Rinse and repeat. And I think that because of our society, because of culturally, we're all told that alcohol in Ireland and England, and let's be honest, Dave, you and I know people from all over the world in this space. So globally, we are told that we need alcohol at every point in our lives and every celebration and commiseration. And you and I both know that is both dangerous advice to give to people. And also it's untrue. It's untrue. I've just come back from three and a half weeks in the States. And I, my best friend, I have two best friends. One lives at home and one lives in the States. And my darling Deb is afraid of flying. And she's in DC. And her darling son, Tyler, was getting married in Denver, Colorado. So I drove from Washington, DC to Denver, Colorado. We drove over nearly 4,000 miles in six days. It was two women in a car. We solved uh, world debt. Uh, we know how to fix Africa. We can fix the Ukrainian war, and there isn't a man safe between here and DC. So, three and a half weeks of two women in a car. Can you imagine?
0: Sounds like a book there, Sue. Oh, it should have been a Netflix series.
1: This was. <laughs> it was myself and Deb and Bentley. And Bentley is a ginormous, big pit bull. And he was our minder dog. It's her dog. And we did. We drove thousands and thousands of miles, right? Here's the thing. She doesn't drink. She has never drank in her life. She never liked the smell of it or never liked the taste of it. She's never actually had an alcoholic drink. And me, sober, alive, alert. Do you think if I was doing a bottle every night, that when she made that phone call seven months ago and said to me, I don't know how I'm going to get to Denver because I can't fly. I was able to say that night, say, not a bother. I fly into DC and we'll drive across. That is sobriety. Sobriety is showing up for the people you love in your life, right? And the day of the wedding, she was, be- she looked beautiful. So did the bride, but my best friend looked better. Oh. So my best friend looked gorgeous. And my goddaughter, Channy B, her daughter, she was the bridesmaid. But I was able to stand there, right? So proud of them. Yes, and Tyler, but also of me. Mm. Because I have just driven across the country. We went through Missouri, Kansas, Illinois. We were in oh, Illinois. We were in Ohio to arrive in Denver. We were literally 4,000 miles and that sobriety, that's a woman who could hear the pain in her best friend's voice, dreading the big day in her family. The sober Susan was able to say, Not a bother, I'll be there. And we were up every morning like a lark, put on our music. I danced across Kansas, which is a very flat state, let me tell you, like there isn't a hill or a mountain and we had a and i had the most fabulous time and people said to me did you go see this no i didn't what did you do drove across america went to a wedding came back to dc and then spent 10 days in my best friend's kitchen drinking tea eating cookies and enjoying the company of each other right going out to dinner at night and um having my zero beers
0: Do you know what, Sue, that really uh, reminded me actually of that wonderful story you've just told me, and you say that sobriety, but I'll tell you something else as well, was when my son, unfortunately, he lost his stepdad to drinking, his stepdad was 54, and that was during lockdown, so I had to watch the funeral online, which was awful for me, because I saw my son at the funeral breaking down and all i wanted to do was put my arm around him tell him i loved him you know but soon after that he got a little flat in london and it and it was a sunday and he said to me dad can you help me put the telly on the wall on the bracket right and normally my routine was 12 o'clock peel the potatoes, get a beer out, and by five, I can't even carve the chicken. Yeah. So I went over and put the TV on the wall, and we did a few other odd jobs. And he got to about five, and he said, um, oh, Dad, I've knocked up um, a nice little curry in that with some number. Do you want to stay and we can watch a film together? I know that if I was drinking, I'd have been gone by one o'clock. But I would have put the TV bracket on the wall, all wonky in that, and gone, mate, I'm so busy, I need to get home again. But I said, let's go. And we had a lovely curry and we watched a film on the sofa together and I left about eight o'clock and I thought, God, that that is sobriety to me, you know, like, like spending time with your loved ones when normally you'd be thinking, it's like having an affair, isn't it? I've got to go and see the mistress or I've got to see matey boy with his white shirt and aftershave and his sweet talk.
1: Absolutely. And you see, the thing about it is, is, when, people, when when I was drinking and in the thick of it, right, I couldn't imagine life without alcohol. And yet one of the magical things of sobriety is hearing the voices of those we love and need and being able to answer that. Put up the TV, drive across America, um, listen to my sister, listen to my friend, whatever the case may be. The golden ticket we have isn't the big big moments. It isn't the first wedding we go to or it isn't for me personally. It is the small moments. I'll give you another one. Uh, Last Friday week, while I was in the States, my eldest son lives in Paris, Max. He's a legend. And his two younger brothers, Noah and Sam, are one in Madrid and one in San Sebastian at university. And my youngest son, Sam, uh, loves Hans Zimmer. So he was doing a concert in Paris. So my eldest, as a treat, post their uni exams, brought them up to Paris and they were all watching Hans Zimmer um, going to this concert. The joy for me was on the Friday in the States, it was afternoon, nighttime Paris. I was having tea and cake, which means when the boys FaceTime or when the boys call with their excitement to say in Paris doing the, I can answer the phone. Now, if you said that to somebody outside our space, they'd go, OK, big deal. You were able to answer your phone on Friday. What do you want? The Nobel Peace Prize? No. But I tell you what, there's many a Friday in my life where I had to not answer telephone calls and FaceTime calls because I was afraid people would realize I had a bottle of wine. To my children, couldn't answer the phone. To my sister, to my mother when she was alive. Whoever. Because you become, you know, you know you're a in And you know you look compromised. So the following day, you're lying saying, oh, I saw that you called. But you know what? We were gardening. Or I saw that you called and I was doing this. So it's one lie after another. Whereas on a Friday afternoon, they were at uh, a concert in Paris. And I knew I could answer my phone. So I was able to say, call whenever you want, lads, I'm here. Again, it's not the big moment. yeah. just that Friday evening, being able to take a call. These are the things that drunkenness and alcoholism do. Do
0: you know, a worse one for me was when you're playing text tennis with someone and then they ring you and you don't answer it because you've been caught. Because how can you be texting for the last two hours and then when I ring you, you don't answer it? Yes. Anyway, I mean, so I, I want to get to the to the bit, right, of where it got to a place in your life that you really began to realise that it was affecting you on every level. And when was that?
1: So here's the thing. I always say there's a decade and a half of, of, of over-drinking. Yeah, I think the last five years were without question I had reached a bottle. I think that I was working my way up to that for the previous decade. And I, again, um, I didn't have what you or anyone else or me would even consider a rock bottom. I had one every day is the truth. I had one every day because I lost my own self-respect and I didn't like myself at all. And that duality of spirit that you have, you're two people, aren't you? So how was your weekend? You to lie at the water cooler and invent things that you did. Because the truth of the matter is come one o'clock or two o'clock on a Saturday, you were unavailable to the outside world. And for me, it was October 2018. And again, I don't know. I don't know. There was no argument. There wasn't any. The kitchen didn't blow up. Nothing happened. And I think I was weeping like many of us do with alcohol inside of us. And I was weeping at the table and I went online and I I knew, I said the three most important words to myself. I said, I need help. And I had wanted for some time to give it up. I tried, i done dry January, dry November the year before. I went to sober online school and at the end of six weeks, I hadn't drank, but I also knew myself too well. And I knew if I didn't create people around me and accountability, I was going to fall off the horse really bloody quickly. Because, you know, you come out of sober online school or you come out of 30 days and you're on a pink cloud and you're going to... But then the, midden, the minute somebody does something to you at work, you you reach for the default setting. The default setting is alcohol. Neuropathic pathways can be changed, but they're not going to be done in an hour or a week. And so I immediately... Um, I used to write every morning in sober school... And some of the women asked me to continue. And I took those women with me. And I think that I describe it as, you know, a moment in my life where the real decision came when I was six weeks sober. Because when I was six weeks sober, I had to decide, did I want to save my life or was I just going through a phase? Was this like going on a diet Or was this like getting healthy so that I could drink myself into oblivion, you know, for the rest of the year? What What was the purpose of this not drinking? And I think it was then I decided when I was six weeks in, you know, I have a problem. I have a problem with alcohol. I need to accept that. I'm not surrendering. I'm surrendering into the power of making the choice to not drink. I'm not on my knees, I'm not walking around in sackcloth and ashes, but I'm smart enough now to know that I was addicted to an addictive substance. If I put that addictive substance back into my body, we're screwed. So therefore, I now need to create a situation whereby every decision I make supports the decision to not drink, be that people, places, things, be that putting exercise into my day, making all the relevant changes that make this sustainable. Too many people, you know, go, oh yeah, I'm going to do this, right? And I'm all guns blazing and I'm following Sober Dave and I'm loving it, I'm loving it. And a curveball comes and you know what? They go buy a six pack. Because it's not just enough to say, I'm not drinking today. It's actually about, I'm not drinking today and I want to be a better person. Today, I want to show up for myself today. So when women say to me, Oh, I'm doing it for my children. I love my children. I always say, shut up. Sorry. With all due respect, you need to love yourself first. Yeah. Your children. Yes, absolutely. But, you know, doing it for others is not going to be sustainable. Somewhere deep inside the mess, somewhere deep inside the fracture, somewhere deep inside the darkness that is a bottle a day, I had to dig really deep and say, is there any piece of you, Susan, that you like in there? And if there is, if there is, reach inside, pull it out, and let's not drink today. And that's how I did it in the very beginning.
0: Do you know what's um, bizarre, right, is that you a couple of months in front of me, right? So Days, um, days. Dave. days is it days yes oh i thought you said october
1: uh, so it's october 2018 i sought out but i didn't right. go in until the 6th of january you oh
0: yes so parents. one day there's one yes. day in it right i thought that actually Yeah. because um, i'm obviously
1: long time sober more than
0: yours yeah bloody days. sue um, one day but you know what which is really ironic is that I had that exact experience after six weeks because my friend set, sort of challenged me in his own way to uh, give up drinking with him. And actually, he wasn't really a drinker, but I didn't know that. But it was, it was serendipity at the time, right? And it was halfway through, six weeks through, that I had that moment of seeing that pub in the corner and thinking, in six weeks' time, I will be going in there ordering the Peroni, sitting there on my own, having four of them, going to Londis, getting the two bottles or three bottles of wine, drinking one on the way home and chucking it in the bin. And and it was that moment, it was like a thunderbolt. It's like you've got a crossroad, you either turn left or right here, and I turn left, right? And, And this is what I always say to people about, taking a minimum of 30 days off right because you can use that as an experiment you can explore so many things but it also gives you the opportunity the chance to to give yourself a little bit of self-love self-compassion and think you know for me when i was drinking at my worst i loved myself Same here. i loved it the the thought of who i'd become What was I? Who was I representing myself to the world as? Like, uh, who, Who? for me to feel like that was just a waste of life, right? And when I stopped and I come out of that, it was little, as you say, you can't do it overnight, but there was little tiny moments of me looking in the mirror and looking at myself going, do you know what? You're a little bit more rosy in the cheeks or you look like you've slept and actually you're doing all right, Dave. And that, that that was the moment that kept me going, kept me going.
1: Yeah. And that's really important. People understand that, right? Because so many men and women come into this space and they sort of turn around after three weeks and they go, well, I don't look 10 years younger. My sleeping is shit. Mm. And I'm still fighting with my husband. And I really genuinely try and press upon people that it took me a decade and a half to get into that state of neglect. And here's the point. No one outside the universe, outside my kitchen, knew I was neglecting my spirit. Nobody knew that, right? Because on the outside, I was put together.
0: You are an actress.
1: Absolutely. I should have had an Oscar long. Ago. All of us should have, right? So I was neglecting myself, and I was neglecting the gift that I had been given, which was life. And I was neglecting any skills that I had, any talents I had. Everything was being neglected because alcohol robs it from us, but it does it under the cloak and dagger, whereby we're not even aware that our dreams have been stolen because we've just forgotten to dream. And because of that. It is a very slow, steady rise, back up, right. So, therefore, when we give it up on day one, and we're sh- we feel shit, and day ten we feel better. Six weeks in, like you, I began to think, okay, there's something. Mm. I still hate myself. Mm. I still think I'm a silly cow. I still think I'm the worst human that's ever been made by God or by man. But There was something and a chink in the armor enough, enough for me to go, no, I'm actually going to save her. I wrote this thing some years ago called Never Again Like That. And I talk in this piece about never again will I fall on the blue tile step like that. Never again will I lose my car keys like that. Mm. Never again will I let him shout at me like that. Never again will I wake up in my clothes like that. Never again will I reduce myself to this mess. Mm. And I go on in this poem, if you like, whatever, to to say that never again. She's a woman. Never again stands at the top of the hill. And in the last piece, it basically says that, you know, there's no marching boots on the hill coming to save you. And I turn to never again and I say, I've got this. Mm. I'll take it from here. And that's the piece all of us need to find. Never again is one statement, but we need to take it from here. You and I chose somewhere in the darkness, somewhere in the mire at 3 a.m. in the morning, we just said, you know what, I'm going to not drink again tomorrow. And it becomes that minuscule. And the truth of being alcohol free is we're present enough to make those decisions clear enough in our heads to embrace those decisions. And so at six weeks, did you and I look fabulous? No. Did we feel fabulous? No. Did we feel better? Yes, we felt better. And we had also learned, I think, in six weeks that we weren't alone in this. And that's the magic of having a sober Instagram world and having people like you bringing people together and Ola sober bringing people together so that we... You know, as a community, we're all stronger together, aren't we? And, you know, we can all nod our heads when we hear stories and go, yeah, yeah, I did that. And yeah, yeah, I did that. And I did that and I did that. But the truth of it again, it's not a freaking t-shirt. Okay. Life isn't a slogan on a t-shirt. We work at this. We show up for ourselves. We show up for our community
0: and we normalize it. And there's so much shame and stigma still. You know, I do bit of work for corporate and stuff and uh do some talks and presentations and that and you get 12 people turn up and the cameras are off because they don't want to be associated with why are you joining a conversation about um alcohol in that is, the stigma still there you it know is, we and, need and, to
1: break it we need but to we break are
0: breaking it. it so we are breaking it and we go on to what you do uh in a little while but each day we show up and we put something out on social media, or we might go into a talk somewhere, or you know, um, I've got a number plate that um, I won't say what it is because, <laughs> but it it's virtually says sober, right? And people go, "Oh, that's a brilliant number plate." What? What? The? And I go, "Well, actually, I don't brag about it. I just say it with confidence because I'm proud of myself." Do you know what I mean?
1: Same here. Um, but, For me, it's being sober is the proudest thing I've ever done. Yeah. And I've held all the office titles one can hold from CEO down. And the most important thing I've ever done is to find sobriety. Yeah. To hold it, to cherish it, to live it, to celebrate it, to talk about it, to encourage and motivate others. So your number plate is a conversation starter. I, I yeah. Listen, I talk talk in sobriety. I talk about it. I talk about it in Tesco, right? Don't stop me in the T section or else I'll be talking to you about it.
0: Mm. But, you know, the number plate is not so much as, well, I think, if I'm being completely honest, it is a bit flash, right? But it's also an affirmation every time I look out my window. It yes. is. Honestly, it's like an affirmation for me. It's like, yes. And it's the proudest thing I've ever done for myself, like literally. And I want other people to have it as well. Not my car or my number plate, but I how I the feel. Car, you can keep yeah. the <laughs> do you know what I mean, though, Sue? It's like I really, really want to say to people, do you know what? I know it's really scary. It feels out of reach in the beginning you know, how are you going to get through a really hard day? But let's face it about the romanticizing, right? There's any day that we need to cope. Everyone's so overwhelmed these days, right? With everything, life is overwhelming, right? So you're taking away the one tool that they've got their reward. It's like, oh, God, I can have a drink. You know, life's short. Um, if we can't have a drink every now and again. Well, mm, is that a drink every now and again or a bottle and a half a night? Be real with yourself, you know, and this is what I tell people.
1: Here's the thing, you know, uh, listen, life is terrible and it's challenging so I can have a drink. What they don't know is they're shortening their life by having a drink, quite frankly, and, and putting themselves on the road to addiction. And I think when you look out the window and you see your car, flash or not, and I say be flash, for Christ's sake, celebrate the one achievement in your life that you're truly, truly proud of. Um, and I do think those things are important. Those affirmations are important because, you see, the antithesis is we grew up with that sort of caricature of the dry drunk and they were miserable mm. and they they, they they didn't drink at weddings and they hated weddings and they hated get togethers and they hated family moments because they were in the traditional 12 step programme and a lot of them were either evangelical or miserable. There didn't seem to be somewhere in the middle, right? And the traditional route saved millions of Irish families and English families and it's a wonderful organisation with faults and failings like every other organisation, But the point about it is modern recovery's fundamental difference is we celebrate the fact that we're not drinking, as opposed to being a dry drunk in a corner saying, listen, I'm fine, I'll have sparkling water. And you know, a miserable get sort of mentality. Whereas I know deep inside me that drinking Susan, although allegedly more mainstream, was half the person she could be. Not drinking Susan. Is loud, proud, passionate, energetic, is all of those things. And I remember every single moment. And I came back from three and a half weeks in the United States without one moment of me saying at weddings or dinners, rehearsal dinners, brunches after the wedding, shit, what did I say to him? Yeah. What did I do there? Was I dancing like a lunatic? Oh my God. Not one delightful moment of fear. That is huge. And so, therefore, when we have number plates or when we have T-shirts or sequins or whatever we have, it's because you and I recover out loud so others don't. Because the business culture and Wall Street and the city, all of them talk a good game. It's a bit like greenwashing. They talk a good game about supporting recovery, but by God, do they get nervous when people in the hierarchy of management have addiction issues? They get nervous. They get very nervous. So we need to be brash. We need to actually make ourselves be mainstream in order for everybody right and left of us to not look at us as though, well, Susan and Dave, they're lovely, but God loves them. They had a problem. They had a problem with alcohol. You know yourself. Disease. Weak. Flawed. Yeah because the world absorbed the vocabulary of 1936 when AA was founded. And the American Medical Association was the front runner in all of that. And by doing so, they created a recovery industry that's worth billions based on a model that is about alcoholism and disease. And so that doesn't apply in modern recovery. We do recover. You and I are a living example of people five years ago, who probably hated ourselves, and one day apart, somewhere in a darkness at 3 a.m., you and I decided to give this a go. And here we are in a Saturday morning celebrating the fact that, first of all, it's Saturday morning, and we both look human, and we're not hungover and feeling shite. And second of all, that we can look each other in the eye and have a clear understanding without ever knowing our story Yeah, because people in the sober space just connect
0: yeah they do it's like an unspoken word isn't it it's like you you just know and like you know personally myself i don't want to keep repeating how terrible it was i want to forget that i want to move on and that's why i i don't go on about recovery that model i go on about discovery because life now i want to live it to the full and that's why i climbed that mountain in morocco I'm yes. um, doing Nepal, the Annapurna circuit. I want to live my life. And almost in a way, I've worked out that I want to make up for the years that are wasted by my drinking, especially my 40s, because I've said on here before that I don't really remember that decade, right? And it's like, Jesus Christ, next year I'm 60, right? I've got to, I've got to fill my life up. I've got to be fit, healthy, help others, get up in the morning. And within a minute, I'm clear, ready to go. You know, that's not always the case. But a lot of the time it's like, yes, let's embrace the day, you know, and that's the difference rather than going on about being an alcoholic. And that doesn't work for me.
1: Right. I don't do labels. You don't do labels. And here's the point. I come at it from a street of it's critically important for me never to forget my darkness. The first five sentences I wrote on my day one, I have on my notice board, I have in my wallet. Um, because I know myself and I need to know, to, to to feel all the light, I need to remember how dark it got for me. And I wrote a pledge that I say every single morning, because that's me. I You know, I use words, I'm a communicator. So therefore, I say my pledge. And my community is so important to me at Ola Sober. And I think that it is about living. For women, I talk about our empowerment. We rendered ourselves powerless every time we took a drink. So therefore, every single day that I'm sober and I will be for the rest of my life, I can say with conviction, I live it to the full. So when somebody says, I can't actually believe you nearly did 4,000 miles, that's living. That's being able to get up at the dawn, have our breakfast, get in the car, drive 13 hours, stop at road stops, walk the dog, walk around, listen to music, laugh. Cry, be joyful, mm. be real, be authentic in a car with your best friend. That's living. Living isn't 49 feckin' bottles of beer in a beats in a nightclub. That's dying. Being on a road trip, climbing the mountain in Morocco, going to Nepal. That's us living. Mm. And that's all because we were bold, we were courageous, we were terrified. I was terrified. You were terrified. We felt shit in that early week, second week, third week. But we're here to tell the tale that not only, not only is life better because you and I don't drink, we're better because we don't drink. Our families are better. Our friends are better. The decisions we make are better. They're sometimes difficult, very difficult decisions we make with a clear head. Yeah. But we know, hand on heart, when we make them, we're not making them because we're jarred. Yeah. And I made decisions while I was jarred. But in the cold light of day, I am making good decisions. And the joyfulness of living in sobriety, as opposed to being a dry drunk and feeling I'm missing out. I'm not missing out on anything, quite frankly. You know, living here in Spain and all the islands and people go to nightclubs. And it makes me really sad because they think, oh, I'm going to Ibiza or I'm going to Malaga. They don't remember diddly squat. Yeah, you see them in Madrid airport on their way back to Ireland in the UK. They're scalded because they have forgot to put on Sun Factor. They're, they look like they need another holiday. That, that's not living. That's not what you and I do.
0: Absolutely so. And that's brilliant. And, and you know, it's important to say as well that I know a lot of us it can come across like we're all positive and great and, and everything's wonderful. And there are times that are difficult, you know, feeling our feelings, dealing with conversations, emotional conversations. And they're hard because, as you said earlier, your default setting is to go for the coping mechanism, which is alcohol.
1: This is adulting, Dave. Be under no illusions. Yeah, sobriety is not for the faint-hearted, and that's not because it's difficult. It's because life is difficult. Yeah, you and I are faced with day-to-day decisions as parents, as as partners, um, in life, in work, in all of those things. So, therefore, you know the truth and the reality is: yes, I'm really positive. Yes, I am, and yes, I have a natural ability to reframe life in all its guises. But that does not mean in the last four and a half years that I haven't dealt with loss and pain and grief and difficulty and business and financial business and all of it. I deal with all of it. But the difference is the difference is I do not give my power to alcohol to make decisions in my life. I make decisions in my life. And as a mature adult woman, I'm able to have difficult freaking conversations with my husband, with my children, with my sister, with my friends. And sometimes conversations are hard, right? Sometimes they're hard. Sometimes we've got to say to people, I'm not putting up with that. Sorry, I'm not putting up with that. That's not what I'm here for. And I always say to my kids and my husband, I didn't get sober for this shit, right? Right. I got sober to live my life. I do. Honestly, I didn't get sober for this shit. Make your bed. I didn't get sober for this shit. Pass your exams. Because you and I didn't get sober for this shit. We got sober to live, but we're able to cope with the shit because we're sober. It's, it's, it's the 360. That's the joy. That's the joy. That's the pain. And if anybody out there thinks, yeah, right, okay, pain in the arse, you know, she's so positive and she can reframe. But what I am saying is is that that's a gift of sobriety because alcohol is a depressant and alcohol leads to anxiety. When I put that down, the sun came into my life. And even when it's bad and sad and there have been bad days and there have been sad days, very sad days, I'm still able to say, at least I'm here and I'm not drinking and I'm not twisted and I'm not going to add to the pain by doing something really dumb and stupid.
0: Yeah. And another thing you touched on there, alcohol's a depressant, right, is that I was on antidepressants when I was drinking, right, which seems crazy because it's a mind-altering drug. It's a depressant, and no wonder I was on them, right? But when I did stop drinking, my neuropathways did change. My mood changed. I was getting more dopamine from life, and gradually I started to wean off of them as well. And I'm not saying they're a bad thing because some people just need them, right? But for me, I, uh, I've got a faulty dopamine receptor. I was tested, and that came up. I'm very low on serotonin naturally, and I'm very low on vitamin D. So basically, my label there—we hate labels—is Dave, you're a miserable bastard. Absolutely, right? a miserable okay? guest. A good word.
1: A, a miserable guest,
0: <laughs> right? But taking booze out of my life is there's there's rarely a day that I feel like a miserable get no i sounded scousing but you know naturally i have that zest for life that zest for doing things i've got more energy and stuff like that and and that's the difference in me and now i'm not on them and yet we all have up and down days but in general life is good you know
1: it is and something that i want to touch on as well because you're talking about your antidepressants right so one of the things that for a woman, which is relevant, and I mean, in fairness, you do look really well uh, for a man who's 60 next year. I mean, you genuinely look well. So whoever your cosmetic surgeon is, he's a genius. But um, you do look very well your age. But it's also the fact that women say to me all the time, oh, God, you know, my skin looks better and this, that and the other, which is true. But the truth of the matter is your skin looks better probably because you're clean in your face for the first time in a decade. Because when you're jarred, you're not actually cleansing or moisturizing, you're just falling into bed and passing out. So there's natural behaviors that we begin to reclaim in our lives, like brushing our teeth, shocking, but truth cleaning our faces, putting on moisturizer, conditioning our hair, taking time out on a Saturday to take a long lingering lounge in the bath. You know, there's certain self-care elements that we put into our lives that actually we didn't do when we were drinking. So you taking antidepressants and putting alcohol on top of it, well, they were cancelling each other out. You were just going to be a miserable get. Taking alcohol out, Sunshine, Dave, had a chance to actually show up. And I think that the more we regain our self-respect and the more we regain that piece of us that we felt was certainly I felt I was out of control inside. I felt like no control. I felt like I was a train going down a track about to career off the edge of a cliff. The more I reclaimed my power, the more sunnier disposition I became because I began to like myself, having disliked myself pretty much all of my life, but certainly in the previous decade and a half. And I think that's also really relevant to mood and disposition and handling life, that we're in a better mood when we're not drinking, which means the bad stuff that comes along is easier to deal with.
0: Yeah, I agree. but I, I, I'm going to take a little cheeky step forward right, it's what you say about the self-care, that's external. What about the internal, right, where your organs are beginning to function better, your food choices are going to improve your gut health and your digestive system. You know, like when when you think about the lack of sleep, how that affects our um, anxiety, our low mood, when you're getting up every morning with a hangover and you've got an important meeting, but then your reward is by – The afternoon, you start to convince yourself that you can have a glass of wine, celebrate the meeting when okay, and then rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat again. Vital fat around the liver, around your organs, right? That's all going to come out in your skin, right, where that's not working properly, right? So when you stop drinking and you exercise, you hydrate lots, um, you do self-development mentally, you know, you, you can educate yourself, you meet community, that's cheering you up. Your food choices change, your sleep gets better. It all comes out, right?
1: Absolutely. I've often said to my husband um over the last four and a half years, Did you always feel like this? Right? Because my husband's not a drinker and he minds himself and he yeah. takes vitamins and he sleeps. He goes to bed every night at half past ten. He's like the clock. He's up at That's six. Late. Yeah, and he has a man of routine. And um he is healthy as a horse, quite frankly, yeah. and he's sixty-four yeah. this August. And when I start to take care of myself, drinking water, taking vitamins, adding exercise into my day as a non-negotiable, in other words, walking every day, now that the summer is here, the pool's outside, I swim every day for 20 to 30 minutes every single day at the moment. And all of these acts of self-care, which, you know, the modern world dismisses the word self-care as some sort of blasé phase or other that will be, you know, part of a woman or a man's life if they're woo-woo. When the reality is self-care is a fundamental thing that we should all be doing because we need to take care of this body. We only have one body and the internal workings are being hammered uh, with alcohol. And the damage it not only does to the main organs within the body, but also the brain, the gray matter and the brain cells and the amount of diminishing that we're doing to the mechanism that is an incredible thing within our own bodies And we daily are putting it under assault, quite frankly. And it's a wonder many of us are actually alive, is the truth. And when we come out the other side, I think we're honour bound and it's morally incumbent upon us to take care of this body. And that involves regular health checks for women and men. Um, involves certain vitamins, blood analysis in the first three months of sobriety, I went and had my blood looked at to see what I was lacking, what I needed. Because the truth is, if you sent to somebody, I drank, I ate salted peanuts, a ton of them every day for 15 years, they'd say you really need to go to the doctor and check your sodium levels, you need to check your gut, your stomach. We need to apply the same logic. Within three to six months of giving up alcohol, I tell women, go for a blood screening with your doctor. Talk to your doctor honestly and truthfully about your drinking. See, do you need scans? See, do you need checks from him? See, do you need intervention in terms of a vitamin? Take it. Let's rebuild, not only on the outside, but as you rightly said, from the inside out, Mm. which is why every morning when I wake up and I do my pledge and I light my candles, I go inward so I can go outward. Mm-hmm. So quite similarly, from a health perspective, we need to go inwards to what we don't see. And as mm-hmm. you know, I was very ill last year and now I'm doing really well. But all of that was a result of smoking and drinking and genetics. And so therefore, if I had not been drinking, I would have probably realized sooner that I had an issue if you understand but you know when I stopped drinking then I thought everything was because I had been drinking but I think that there is if like a contract with ourselves involves mind body and spirit and that contract with ourselves in sobriety needs to involve a doctor and an expert to look at us within three to six months and say this is what you need because a lot of the outward stuff is visible to us, but we're unsure of the damage we've done inside. And yeah. it's something to be dealt with sooner than I later. think
0: that can feel scary for people as well, though. You know, like a lot of people that come to me for help and that, and that, you know, it's that subject of liver health and stuff like that. So I always say, look, I totally 100% agree with what you're saying. You know, and I've just recently had a blood test as well that checks liver, kidneys, cholesterol and whatever. and even after four and a half years, I'm like, "Oh my God, that was going to come up." But you know, all these things are really important information, but what I'm going to say now, Sue, is that I think we've kind of sold it to people. I think we've sold it. Also, I want to before we go, because I like to keep these around an hour, one for the road, people go to the gym they um, drive in their cars and whatnot so before we go I want you to tell people about your wonderful magazine and what else you're doing
1: my fabulous and wonderful uh, community of women is called Ola Sober so Ola Sober was founded by me because I believed I needed community and accountability and so it offers multiple supports and again I also believed that AA had a lot of things right and a lot of things wrong, but one of them was from a monetization perspective. So my husband and I decided to do this and we would fund this to make resources available to people in sobriety. So there is a daily email which goes out every morning and in it is always some thought or reflection I have. There's always some art. There's always um, a song because I believe in dancing around my kitchen at half seven in the morning. I believe it's a great way to start your day. And this morning, when you and I joined, I was listening to ELO. So therefore, that is the first part daily email. And that, that became a thing. And people started to like the daily email, which became a weekend at me adding in lipstick and, and, and bits and pieces, which then became and gave birth to Ola Sober, the monthly magazine. And the next issue was out at the beginning of August. And in that, there will be some fabulous um, gardening tips coming from summer into autumn. There's also some beauty. There's also a lot about um, aftercare from sun because, you know, we need to be really mindful of melanomas. So therefore, the aftercare, if you've been on your summer holiday, there's fashion There's obviously stories of sobriety. Mm. And there's a fabulous story from a really amazing woman in New York and her son. And it's two perspective. It's him. He was the addict. And it's her perspective as a mom. And it's a very strong piece because I think sometimes you need to see both sides of the story. So Ola Sober, again, everybody is volunteering. Um, The columnist volunteer. Um, I do the work here in Madrid. So there's the magazine. I also do plant 100 and that is a hundred days of not drinking and a video and a lesson for me. And on the 16th of July, um, I'm going to have Camino 30. So I live in Spain, as you know, and people go on the Camino to Santiago de Compostela and you go out on the Camino and you just, it's meant to be a reflective journey and many people do it on their own. So I felt that. Sobriety in many ways, inner early sobriety is reflective. So Camino 30 is 30 days in a classroom with lessons and video. But you go in there on your own. You're not mentored. You're not guided. There isn't any special meetings. You just come to the usual. We offer nine meetings a week free at Ola Sober. And that's the aftercare program. Because I think that, like you've said, 30 days without alcohol is a window into possibility. It just opens your eyes and your minds to what can be done in 30 days. And imagine how brilliant you'd feel if you did another 30. So one of the other things we're excited about is is that one of our ladies, Beth, she has started something called Click Sober. And that's t-shirts. And 20% of all of her merchandise is going to go to Ola Sober. So this is, if you like, in many ways, Dave, at women helping women and women's empowering women. Sorry, and I know that you're a man and all of
0: that but well I'm, I'm a woman as well really I'm not you,
1: yeah this morning you're identifying as a woman so yeah. therefore we. this is women empowering women I believe that when we do give up alcohol we find that inner voice and we use that voice and that space and we empower each other by our presence in sobriety and I want to support women in business and in the magazine the, that was one of my original focuses there was no sober magazine and I felt there was a need for one so why not do it myself? And I think that any woman in business and obviously yourself and man, anyone in sobriety that is getting up off their ass and doing something to help others, they deserve a spotlight. Mm. And that's part of what Ola Sober's, if you like, mission is to to show the world that there are many fabulous men and women in sobriety that don't look like that they were addicted to an addictive substance, don't sound like they were addicted to an addictive substance. They've recovered. They're living their life to the full and they're as normal as anybody else because that cliche look still applies. So the magazine in many ways, Dave, is to reach not just the sober community. Uh, My sister doesn't have our thing and I need to reach her. That's the point because you and I having conversations is great, but we need to go outside the gene pool. Yes. people outside yeah.
0: I do and I love it and it's a fantastic magazine in which I've appeared in myself and you're always really supportive for me you always say look we can do something in there and that okay. so how does someone access this if
1: they go on to Ola H-O-L-A Sober S-O-B-E dot .com um, that's how they will sign up for the magazine they will see other issues on the site and if they need support they can click on there as well and they will see so that's, it's olasober.com. I'm Susan at olasober.com. I'm easy to find. And I think that I'm pretty sure going into the month of August, anybody going on vacation that wants to have something on their phone or their laptop or their tablet to read, Ola Sober is the one that you should be taking by the yeah. sunshine and the and the umbrella. It
0: is brilliant. Honestly, I can't recommend it higher. And, and so honestly, um, I'm going to wind it in now because I know you and me could talk till about four o'clock. Um,
1: tomorrow. Yeah. Partner,
0: tomorrow. <laughs> it's been a real, real joy. And as usual, you're the most inspirational person. And I'm sure people are going to love you. They're going to love your magazine, everything you represent in this community. I'm so happy you've joined me today. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, as always, Dave. You're a complete treasure and a legend. I love being in your company. And thank you for being the first man I've seen on a Saturday
0: morning. (laughs) That voice is just brilliant. Thank you, Sue. And you have an absolutely wonderful day.
1: And you too, my friend. Thank you very much indeed.
0: I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book One For The Road on Amazon and you can also follow me on Instagram at Sober Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.